You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Thank you very much for tuning in. The interview subject that I have prepared for you, for your listening pleasure, dear listener, is from Sydney. His name is Yossi Kaskin, and he is one half of the duo that comprise the outfit called Lamalo. Now, the reason for the chat with Yossi is to promote the four in-market singles the guys have put together throughout 2020. And I must say, actually, let me preface this point first by saying that as many of you long-time listeners will know, I'm a big funk, disco and house music fan, alongside heavy metal, of course. I just get more opportunities to chat to heavy metal artists than anybody else, any other genre, I should say. But whenever I get a chance to chat to somebody who's performing music you can dance to, I'm there. It just helps that uh, in this case here, Yossi is a bloody good bloke. And uh, I'm probably a bit too enthusiastic here, as I tend to get, and I offer him uh, a bit too much advice, but that's because I want to see Lamalo succeed. So there you go. Anyway, here he is, Yossi Kaskin from the Sydney outfit, Lamalo. Wow, look at this. The wonders hey, of uh, hey. <laughs> telepresent. <laughs> Omni-channel communication. Here you are in in the uh, in the flesh. <laughs> in the flesh, yeah. <laughs> Mate, what's the uh, what's the day held for you thus far? Um. Well, I'm a high school teacher, so it's just been an amazing time of school holidays. I've been really enjoying it so far. Just been doing some stuff around the house. How about you? Let me think. I'm writing a book at the moment, so most of my day has been taken up editing, which is literally my least favourite thing. Actually, let me reframe that and say that if I could if I classify the two things that I enjoy doing least, it would be editing my own writing and moving house. But I've got to do the editing. So, you know, and I haven't moved house in 10 years to give you an idea uh, how much I don't like moving house. But, look, it's just got to be done because uh, the grammar side of things is incredibly important, particularly if you want the book to be a success, you know? Mm, no, of course, yeah. You know. But um, look, let me tell you, I've enjoyed your music now. And it was interesting because when Lee sent through, was it Strings Off? I think it was, he sent through sent through uh, Strings Off. But I also yeah. get emails from Nick Moran. So I also had, prior to Lee sending that through, I had Jungle Train, Key Paso, and also Six yeah. Feet Under. Oh, awesome. Okay, so I've been jamming to those three for a while, but all four cuts, they've got this killer late night vibe, and I love what you're doing, and you really should be the house band at any one of those, you know, those funky dining establishments down at um, Byron or up at Yandina, yeah, being a being a Gold Coaster, sorry, just the reference there, yeah. but uh, that's the vibe that I get. Now, you're in Sydney, is that right? Yeah, we're in Sydney. Yeah, so life here is a bit... Um on and off at the moment, but we have actually been able to play a few cool gigs around, but yeah. It's what what you're doing, mate. Um, oh, gosh, what's the name of the Cargo Bar down there yeah. at Darling Harbour? Is that still there? Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. Well, your music's perfect for that, so please tell me that you've been able to get an outlet that way. Um, yeah, no, it's been really interesting. We've been, um, since we're completely self-managed, we've been trying to organise our own sort of gigs at like Oxford Art Factory, the Lansdowne. We've been lucky enough to support Kite String Tangle at the Lansdowne. Um, and we've been playing around at some festivals actually in Queensland. We played at Negrasses Greener a few years ago, which is nice. really cool. Yeah. Uh, it was in Cairns. 
and yeah, uh, in terms of the local bars and the um, the you know regular gigs, kind of uh, yeah, we haven't been pursuing that as much. Yeah, well, that's understandable given what we're going through at the moment. But look, look, all four cuts do have uh, look; they've got a different and a unique personality. Um, in so far as when I listen to them, it's hard for me to sort of discern whether or not they've been developed and recorded at different times. So, is that the case, or are they all separate sessions? Um, well, they're all separate sessions, but we've kind of during this period we've been lucky enough to. Um, kind of lock down our process and uh, work through it in a really um, systematic way, which has been getting us to kind of put out these songs that are similar but not too similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, well, sorry, so you Mitch know. and I... Yeah, sorry, man. Uh, Mitch and I have been creating the, the backing tracks, basically the instrumental versions. Maybe we've just formulated some drops, stuff like that. And then uh, we kind of get into the studio with a singer, and have been working in on the top line with them. Well, you've been doing a bloody great job because Jungle Train, for example, that has this awesome girl from Ipanema vibe, you know, with the pan pipes and the female vocal thing going on, and I love that track. One of my favourite tracks ever written, as a matter of fact. So what were you going for with Jungle Train? Um, so we've been lucky enough to work with awesome artists, and that one was with Little Green, and her whole stage vibe is that she's this really awesome singer but she's also a flautist so um nice. when we were writing the track we were like how can we put ourselves and put her in the track organically and her flute sounds were just like uh such a, a texture that we hadn't experimented with before mm-hmm. and we were really excited to use that in you know the drops or in the choruses and yeah we thought it was um, it brought something a little bit interesting to the whole production. Oh, it definitely did, yeah. But um, look, the other one, tr- Strings Off, it's got this killer trans element to it. And uh, I guess drawing on my intuition here, I'd say that the cut was developed from another song. I could be completely wrong, but it feels like it's a very mature track in that I can hear you've laboured over the beat to just get it right. So is that the case? Yeah, that was a really interesting one because... Um, with that, uh, with the intro and with the, the chorus droppy sort of section, yeah. they're in sort of different keys, sort of related keys, but sort of different. And we wanted to experiment. This is a bit music nerdy at the moment. Um, go for it. Go for it. You be as music nerdy as you want on my show, mate. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, it starts off in B minor, and then we wanted to outline the whole drop of the bass in E minor, which is, what, the fourth. And... Um, I think we actually heard it somewhere and we're like, that's a really cool idea. How can we take that key change idea and then put it in? And yeah, we, we were like, um, we didn't know how to do it smoothly. So we ended up just having this like bass. Dun, 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 dun. We're like, all right, let's just play that for like four reps or something. And we'll come in with the vocal on top of that. How important is bass to your music? Um, we really labor over it because um, neither Mitch nor I are actually bassists. We we put in all of our bass as, um, you know, Mitch has got a Moog, a Moog uh, Sub 37 that we use yeah. for most of our track. Um, I've actually recently got myself a little Squire bass over there. 
Nice. And we're actually on a um, on a track coming out later um, with a Perth singer. I'm experimenting with slap on there, but it's not going great. Look, I'm a bassist, and uh, you probably can't see behind me, but I've got a photo, a picture behind me of me playing bass there, and I've got my daughter's drum set up there. But um, look, slapping the bass is awesome, man. Because look, let me lead into this uh, that point to this question because Kepaso. Is that the right way to say it? Kepaso. Yeah, yeah, Kepaso. Has this unreal killer bass line that's similar to what Mojo did to their yeah. in their cover with Soup for One by Sheik. You know, so you know that song, you know, Later, Feel Me Tonight, yep. you know, that one there. You know, yeah. for you guys, was that something that you guys recorded or got a bassist in or did you do that with a synth? You have like this awesome ear because that was a reference track for that song. We, nice. we, we looked at the track. And when we were working with Ange, who's a a, um, a singer from Barcelona, we were like, all right, what's a really cool song that incorporates guitar with electronic music and kind of has like this, you know, Hispanic element to it? And um, that was the one I suggested. I was like, all right, this is going to be sick because it has a dun, 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 constantly, which I love. Um, And yeah, that bass that you're hearing, it might pain you. To know that it's a keyboard bass. <laughs> it's a killer it's, uh, line, though. I mean, you've done it justice, though, because it's so groovy. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know if it'd be um, possible to play on bass. I know someone like Davey Five Hundred Four could probably do it. But, <laughs> um, Mark yeah, King could no, do we... it from level forty-two. Mark King or Bernard <laughs> Edwards, the grandmaster himself. Mark King could. Sorry, Bernard Edwards could do it. You know, if he was oh, sure. around, God bless his soul. You know. Yeah, that song went through actually a variety of rewrites. We we started off with this um, sub thirty seven and guitar laid bass, um, and it wasn't working. It wasn't funky enough for us. So um, we just kind of actually took all the bass out of it. We we took heaps of layers, heaps and heaps of layers out of it because our songwriting style is really, um, in a way, it's problematic because we constantly were like, oh, it needs this layer, this layer, this layer, this, this layer. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, it gets too cluttered. So we took everything out. We're like, all right, let's just start from the beginning. We like the drums. Let's just go drums and bass and vocals. Let's see what we can do with that. Make the bass as interesting as possible. And I think, hopefully, if you, if we gave you the stems and you were to listen to it now with just drums and bass, it would actually be interesting, I think. I'm sure it would be. Look, as somebody who's played plenty of these songs, because I'm a covers musician, so I've had to play these songs in front of an audience i've seen like it depends where you are urban environments and metropolitan environments it happens you play it in the country like up at bundy like i've done people swear at you and yell at you and call you all sorts of names but i've seen like when you play something like suit for one like that bass groove this like what you guys have captured within your cut there people run to the dance floor they can't get enough of it and they don't Sometimes I don't feel like people understand that it's the bass that gets there. It's not about the legs, it's about the feet. You know, the heel and the toe, the heel and the toe. I played at the Treasury Casino here a bit, and when we play some real heavy, like, songs where the bass is carrying the songs, some Olivia Newton-John songs, even like Kylie, you know, they're not funky songs, but live. They come to life as funky cuts. And what happens is, is people hear that shit, and if you're playing a five-string bass, as I do, and you've got a decent drummer who understands the offbeat 
are truly important. They understand the nature of the offbeat compared to the bass guitar. Mate, that shit comes to life and all of a sudden you've got a full dance floor. And I feel like when I'm listening to you guys, you get that? Yeah. No, it's been um, it's been really good to try out some of these songs live. Unfortunately, this whole batch of new songs from um, from Jungle Train, we've only been able to play... We actually played Jungle Train and kept us so live before the lockdowns happened. Yeah. And that was this hectic warehouse gig. Um, and we were lucky enough to have a whole dance troupe there that was nice. going nuts. And um, so the whole atmosphere there was incredible. And we were like, this is going to be just an insane year of touring. I can't wait to fill out these like venues all over Australia. Yeah, with big time. Great dancing. And but anyway, then we played it again and it was a, um, a gig where it was like maximum 30 people Everyone had to sit down. They stood up. They got shouted at. <laughs> um, yeah. We had a good time. But, you know, it was just, um, we're just itching to get out there and, you know, see how the crowds react. Because we, sometimes we write things in the studio and we're like, all right, this is going to kill live. This is going to smash it. And then we play it live. And sometimes the audience is like, yeah, that's awesome. And sometimes the audience is like, doesn't yeah. get it. Depends on the venue. Depends on where you go to, though, as well. Like, are you, are you in the inner west there in Sydney? Or whereabouts? Without asking where you live in Sydney, but where do you normally play? Yeah, we usually play in in like the inner city. Sometimes we play in the inner west. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the space, though, isn't it? You know, but Sydney's a tough town. I'm, I, I was born in Sydney, right? And I grew up in Sydney. I got to say, did my schooling in Sydney. But yeah, uh, look, it's I was in Velveteen when I was in Sydney, and. Uh, like we, I wouldn't say we struggled. We got decent airplay in Triple J and did some good support gigs to Thirsty Merc and these sort of events. This is going back 15, 16 years ago, a while ago, a long time ago, as a matter of fact. But the point being is that what I noticed is that people can love your music on the radio, but then they don't turn up to shows. And I've got to say, it's different in Queensland. And I don't know about Victoria, but I have a feeling it's different down there too. So have you thought about the relocation idea? Because what you're doing, man, is hella funky. And it needs to be heard on dance floors. Uh, we we've been thinking more about doing like our first proper tour in the in the summer. Is what we really want to do. Um, see if we can get on some supports in Brisbane and in uh, Melbourne and maybe like Newcastle and Wollongong as well. Um, do that kind of east coast of Sydney uh, of Australia. Mm. Uh, we'd really love to do some of that. The thing about Sydney, it's um. It's difficult in terms of music because I think it's so spread out, you know. So you get like, you know, we'll have our gig in the city, but we're, we're mainly based in the northwest. So all of our people come out to the city. It'll be a good time. And yeah, it's like, like I don't Castle know. Hill or that sort of area. You're around that sort of area. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. the thing is, I think I, I just don't think the suburban venues have taken off in Sydney for some reason, which makes no sense to me, given that it is so spread out. Because in Brisbane, you can go to Kenmore or Ipswich or anywhere like that, or Gold Coast, you can come down here. There's, I wouldn't say there's venues plenty, but there are places to play. But in Sydney, it's like people have this expectation that, no, you've got to go to Newtown or I, I don't know where else. I mean, God, it's been a long time for me, mate. I've been a long time out of there. But, you know, I mean, Newtown was a place when I was growing up. And, uh, yeah. you know, places like the Hopetown and, uh, shit, I can't even remember the names of the other places now. The Bat and Ball, which is in Surrey Hills, I think. It might be mistaken. Like, these are places and, and the Glebe Hotel. I remember playing there. Um, but 
I don't even know if they're still around and, and like the vibe in Sydney has changed so much that I don't know whether it supports live music or whether people want, want to come out and support it with their feet, so to speak, and pay the $8 door charge or whatever it might be. Whereas I, I understand your strategy and I think it's a good one, but a bit of a, bit of a left turn, but regional Australia is crying out too for great entertainment. You know, mm. so as have you thought about going to places like, and you mentioned Cairns, but I'm talking Townsville, Mackay, Bundaberg, even Longreach. Have you thought about these sort of places? We have. Um, I would really love to do regional Australia. It's um, it's more of like a – it's because if you book the gig, you're taking the risk, hoping that people will show up. Correct, um, yeah. And um, when it comes to Spotify and stuff like that, we're, we're trying to see where our potential listeners are and then – yeah, I, I really want to do those regional gigs because I know that from from that one gig we did in Cairns, that the regional crowd was so insane. It was like um, so ready for a good time, and that's like the perfect kind of crowd you want for a gig. Yeah, they're real music fans. Like what it is, mm. if they're going out, it's because they love music. It's not because they're bored and they just want to be yeah. entertained and they're going to blame you for a bad night if you don't put on a show that meets their expectations they're people that work hard and turn up and just you know they want to have a few bevies and just relax and enjoy their evening that sort of thing and i I don't know why more australian artists do that because i think that yeah I, i think it's going to be difficult to promote yourself but well not really because facebook and instagram and the like they allow geo targeting it's not like it's a new thing i mean you can just target the fact that you're playing a show within a week or two, whatever, whatever you, you, you know, your management, whatever you feel is appropriate, whatever lead time you need before you're playing those shows, you know, advertise it on Facebook, geo-target those areas and turn up, mate. And my view on those sort of things, you'll at least have 30 payers, which should cover the base. Yeah. No, that, that is pretty sick. And um, just consistently doing that would obviously build the target audience everywhere. You know, like first tour would be like 30, possibly next tour would be 40, 45. Correct. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Australian audiences is that we respect live performance. And Mm. there's, there's, as I say, I'm writing a book at the moment. One of the comments that I made in the book was that we seem to fall over ourselves as Australian audiences for these half-assed international acts that come down and put in a shit show, literally a shit show. I've seen a few of them. You know, I'll mention Mm. one just because I will. Smashing Pumpkins in 1996, showing my age a little bit, but they were fucking terrible. They're a were shit they bad? band. They're a shit band. Oh. I'm sorry, but like, look, Billy Corgan's a, a musical genius potentially. It's not my thing, but I understand that he's, he's attained to millions of fans all the world over. But his band mm. sucks, and that was the old band. That was the one with Jimmy. Uh, um, yeah, Jimmy. Ch- no, it wasn't Jimmy Chamberlain. He was kicked out by that point. So it was the drummer from the Frogs. I can't remember that guy's name. But it was also Darcy Retsky and also James Ehar. And they were terrible. Yeah. Like they turned up, they played about, I don't know, I'm gonna guess here, maybe it wasn't even ten or eleven songs, and then jammed the rest of it. And they played all of the hits, of course. So all of the douchebag pop fans around, the, the triple M fans as I call them, were jumping up and down for it. But yeah. the hardcore fans, and I'm not one of them, by the way, but I, I remember like God, it's going back a while ago now. I know it's, God, what's that, 24 years ago? Jesus. But I remember seeing Primus not too long before that, and Primus were fantastic, bloody good band. Yeah. And 
then seeing Smashing Pumpkins and it was like, what is it? <laughs> what, what do they think they're fucking doing? Like, what the hell's going on? Like, and those tickets at the time were sixty or seventy bucks or whatever they were. The point is, they're the equivalent of well over a hundred dollars per ticket these days. So you turn up and you think. Wow, this is going to be fantastic. And I'd seen, I remember thinking to myself, even at that age, and I think I was only, I'd only just turned 18, so I'd only barely gone to a few pub gigs at that stage. They were shit. And then in the years following that, I saw all these killer, just unbelievable international acts come down that did, did a good job, like Roland's Band and Faith No More. I know it's different to the music that you're creating, but the point is they put in a great no. show, but I've seen I've seen plenty of international artists come down and half-arse it. And I, and I think the opportunity there, like what Grinspoon understood, there, there's heaps of artists that, that I've spoken to on Firestarter as well that understand too, that live music is the hook, it's the lure to bring people into your music. You know, have the mm. great, excuse my terminology here, but product. You've got that. And you do, man. I mean, look, Ke Pasa should truly be a song that takes off for you guys. It's You've got it all going on. It's all there. You literally cannot do any more than do what you've composed on that. And so I know this is a long narrative that I'll wrap it in a point in a sec, which is that for you guys, I don't think you can be, be doing much more than what you're doing except for putting a good live show for people and prove that you're the real deal that way. So, man, I, I truly hope that when this bloody COVID bullshit ends, you get that opportunity. Yeah, no, um, we've been, I wouldn't say perfecting, we've been honing our live show over the last few years. We've been a band for about four years now. And, um, yeah, we're, we're really trying to, you know, incorporate live singer because – we don't want to be just the press and play guys, you know? Yeah, press I know what you're saying. Put our hands up. <laughs> um, so Mitch, you know, plays his various synths. I play my guitar. Um, and we really try to put on a good show. And I think we're, we're sort of getting there. We're, we're really happy with where it's going at the moment. We're getting really consistent, um, awesome feedback from our shows. And, yeah, I really appreciate your comments on the production and everything and the songwriting. Um, we're just try- with that. We're just trying to be really consistent with our releases, and hopefully, it will get to the point where um, you know tastemakers like Triple J sort of oh. can't ignore us. Mate, don't worry about Triple J. They're assholes. I wouldn't even bother, to be honest with you. Look, honestly, and I know this is coming from the heart. You're too good for them. Look, they're interested in the political thing and all the rest of it at this point in time. And you know, you guys are just trying to create killer cuts for people to dance to and you know, to enhance their lives. You know, Triple J are more interested in the political narrative and all that, that sort of shit. And that's not you guys. I can tell that's not you guys. And that's why I make that point about, look, Sydney and Melbourne, they're tough towns. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, uh, you know, uh, the last, I'm in news media or, almost, you know, I've just graduated from university at the ripe old age of 42. And, uh, you know, I'm reframed to be in news media and uh, something like half of, the country's economy is generated through Sydney and Melbourne alone. Okay. Yeah. Meaning that they're pressure cookers. Okay. And if you don't get things right, they spit you out. I wouldn't bother. I mean, the thing, and Triple J is really a, a, a Sydney and Melbourne centric uh, radio station. It doesn't give a shit about the rest of the country, except for when it suits their purposes. You know, right. For, for you and doing what you do, man, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking outside of the square here, and I, I tend to do this when I'm having conversations with emerging artists like yourself, but working on cruise ships, taking your music mm. to Asia, the world's your oyster because you've actually got what you need here. It's all here. 
It just depends on putting into the hands of influential people. To your point, I understand your point about Triple J. I just don't know. Like Triple J is, it's a very toxic vibe at the moment. I, I wouldn't bother with it, especially with the, the beautiful and wonderful and the melodic music that you're creating here. To try to shoehorn what you do into their playlists and what Richard Kingsmill, I think he's still the the guy who looks after the uh, the playlists there. You know, like what gets gets on radio and basically everything yeah. goes through his hands before it lands on radio. Effectively, I, I just wouldn't bother, and that's my own opinion. You know, feel free to disagree, but certainly that's how I see see things. So I'd say, mate, cast your net wider and look further afield. Yeah, yeah. No, we we are trying to, you know, get out there, get to as many listeners as possible, because really, that's those are the people that can potentially change our lives and make us do this um, full time, which is what we want to do eventually. Um, but yeah, no, I'd love to take the music to Asia. That'd be sick. Uh, with international markets, actually, even with the local market, I don't know how it works. Or um, and the annoying thing for Mitch and I is that we we want to be musicians, but we're constantly thinking business and strategy. You need to be uh, though. That's smart. You're just being smart. Yeah, I know. I know it's like a, a good thing, but it's also kind of frustrating in that because. Um, Let's say if you played a game like Age of Empires, which sure. Mitch and I both, um, there's a strategy and then you get your instant feedback and it either works or it doesn't. Whereas with um, this sort of business long-term planning stuff, it's really difficult to see um, what works, what doesn't. I came up with an idea the other day from reading what um, Chance the Rapper did in America. It's not exactly a revolutionary idea. Um, a few years ago, we put out an EP called a Sunrise EP, or it's called Sunrise. Um, and because um, it was really cheap, we got, instead of getting 100 EPs printed, we got like 2,000 EPs printed for like an extra 50 bucks, right? Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Just because for some reason, duplication, when it gets to that level, it's like nothing. Um, so for like the last two or three years, I've just been looking at this box in my house of a thousand unsold Sunrise EPs. And so, I don't know, the idea I was thinking of is that Mitch and I go out to, you know, local hotspots like Newtown, like um, uh, Pitt Street Mall, and we just hand out that EP that's sitting there doing nothing. We just hand it out for free. And if, you know, one one person has the EP, they're likely to look us up on Spotify rather than paying for a, we were paying for uh, Facebook ads for Spotify, and it was it was coming to about like a dollar for each person who clicked through and listened to a track. Yeah, and these CDs cost less than that, and I think they're more likely to eventuate into real fans than someone who clicks and listens to a song once. That's a really good point, what you mentioned there, because I've got the same thing. I was in a band called Cross Trigger, and I've got a, a not too many, but, you know, the jewel case of uh, of about, uh, I don't know, about 100 CDs or thereabouts. But, you know, we're long gone yeah. as a band, so there's no point handing them out because we're no longer an ongoing concern. But for you to do that, you've got to think like this, like, and I, and I don't like being ethereal too often, but I will be in this case here. So... For you, mate, you know, how old's the EP is it that you're mentioning, the one with the physical copies, two or three years old, did you say? It's, um, I think it's 2017, so three, okay. so three years old. So it's not too long. It's, it's current. It's relevant is what I'm saying. And it probably doesn't sound light years from what you're doing right now. Mm. So It sounds a little bit of stuff, but, yeah, it's not too different. 
the yep. point being is that you could actually, I mean, I'm just suggesting this, when things get, if they ever do get back to normal and you've got that many CDs, come up here to Cavill Avenue on the Gold Coast. Just start handing them out. Just say you're a band from Sydney and you, you, you want people to be interested, man. They're not going to tell you to fuck off. You know what I'm saying? Because people aren't doing that sort of stuff. The trick now, I think, and, and I'll let you in on a bit of a secret, and I hope nobody else picks up on this when they're listening to the podcast episode, but internet marketing and social media marketing, let's just broadly call it e-marketing. I know it's not called that, but you know what I'm saying. It's so cluttered these days. The way to actually cut through is by giving out physical copy. It's incredible. It's sort of going, you know, everything old is new again. You know, the way to do it is by standing in malls like Pitt Street Mall, which I know fairly well where you're talking about, and on King Street there in Newtown or, or in yeah. Parramatta, Church Street Mall there in Parramatta, and just handing it out to anybody that doesn't look like a junkie, that looks like as though they're actually going to support your music. You know, and, and I think you could actually you could actually do that. And, mate, it's a numbers game. What you've got in your hand is a lead. You understand what I'm saying? It's a lead that could lead people to you, to you, to your music and your presence online. And you never know who you're going to give it to and who they know. I know it's an age-old thing, but everybody says, well, I tried it, but it's like, how long did you try it for? How long did yeah. you actually do it for? Like, you've got, you've literally got to give 100 away before one actually materializes to anything even slightly relevant. That's the numbers game. I've been in, prior to me going to uni at Bond, I was in sales most of my life, and I know that's exactly how it is. Everybody thinks like they go out and they go, oh, I've done this, I did this for a few hours. It's like, well, how many did you actually give out or how many did you did you encourage people to sort of take up? And, uh, I mean, it's just a numbers game at the end of the day. But the important thing, mate, and again, I'll come back around and make the point here, is that you've got the, you've got the product. You've got the music. It's here. You, you've done it. Like you don't need to improve on that. It's just the marketing strategy, and that's why I said earlier that, like, I understand why yourself and your bandmate are, like, you know, you think you're focusing on it too much, but unfortunately, that's just how it is. Yeah. No, it's, um, I'm ha I think it would be a good idea. I'm, I'm trying to get Mitch to get out, like, let's do it. He's really great at um, making industry connections and stuff like that, but um, industry connections mean Jack. When they mean nothing, brother. I'm sorry, but the industry connections, all they are is jealous people fucking that will push you down before they help you up. I'm sorry, but that's just yeah. my, my own experience has been that way, and I don't think I'm isolated. Yeah, and it's just a classic thing where once the people get on board, suddenly everyone wants your friend and everyone wants to help you. Or they, and, claim, anyway. they claim your success is theirs. You know, I yeah. helped him do this, and if it wasn't for him, me, they wouldn't have got there. It's all bullshit, mate. You know, I mean, look, as I say, the thing is, you've actually got the songs. That's the key thing. You know, I mean, this other one, Six Feet Under, that's a killer because, you know, the vocal on that one is just superb. Whoever, whoever, yep. I mean, you've got a great ear, mate. You've got an Thanks, outstanding man. ear because to get whoever it was that sang that, and the way, and I know that's you now talking to you that's done this, but. You, you've held the note in the chorus for just an extra beat, whether it's using auto-tune or whatever. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know, yeah. you, you get it. You know how to craft a song. You don't need any help or mentoring that way. Anybody who tells you you need to change it to that, they're full of shit. You know, it's just the marketing side of things and actually getting it out there, man. But, you know, I'm sorry to, you know, bash the negative drum, but it's just that you're out there with a a million others trying to do the same thing, you know, but it's just no. how you cut through, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, with Six Feet Under, we were, 
um, Mitch and I were really happy with that one because that was a track where production-wise we gave uh, three or four layers that were all doing like a really specific thing mm-hmm. um, and they weren't cluttering each other. And then we got to work with um, Charlotte Rochekust, I think her last name is, um, or Charlotte Adele. Maybe I shouldn't have said her last name. But anyway, <laughs> uh, she's, a, she's a vocal producer currently working out of Studios 301. So in terms of vocals and uh, producing vocals, she's awesome. And then, yeah, we just worked on it with her, guided her through it, um, tried to get... Because while we work with the singer, uh, it's not just the singer writing the top line. It's, you know, it's us collaborating, saying, sure. I think this might Absolutely. be better. Yeah, um, yeah and <laughs> that song, in terms of structure, we, we might have failed in terms of structure in that um, we really like how the song ends, like that last chorus of the song, the chord progression changes slightly. And um, it's one of those things where I think we really pick up on it because we've heard the song like a million times and we're like, oh, this is the best part. This is the part I like. And then um, we actually changed the kick patterns there as well. We we did a bit more like boom, 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 or whatever. And um, yeah, and then during the other two choruses, it's like this whole slow build up to that last chorus where the song's actually at a point that it's pumping. <laughs> but yeah, it's no, a killer tune, so- mate. Yeah, I mean, I was just listening to it with my daughter out in the backyard. We're on the swing set, and I had it on. I thought, Jesus, that's a killer song. The thing about that is, and I do test songs out in front of the kids, mate, because they usually tell me to turn shit off when they don't like it. And with all of your stuff, and it's an important point. My daughters are five and seven years of age. They were, yeah, they didn't no- mean, well, yeah, they were happy to hear your music. Is what I'm saying, and. Well- by that, I mean that it could easily be played on radio. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. The interview subject you just heard from then is Yossi Kaskin from the Sydney Dance Disco House Outfit. One of the best in the business, as a matter of fact, Lamalo. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>